This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's reading is from Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6, which can be found on page 622 in the Pew Bibles around you. Isaiah 63. Who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. And I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus, and we receive your word. We receive every bit of your word, every single one of them, because they show us what you're like. They show us who you are. They reveal to us your nature, your purposes, your plans. So even this morning, I want to pray for us as we come to this text. I don't even know how different people in this room experience the reading of this word, but I want to ask that you would do what that old word says, that hard words make soft hearts. God, would you allow the words that we hear this morning the picture we see this morning to confront us in the places of our own need, confront us in the places of our own sin, and would they bring comfort and edification to us in Christ Jesus? God, would you give a spirit of revelation to us this morning? a spirit of illumination, would you shine the light of your face down upon us and let us see you. Let us see Jesus. Let us glory in him and him alone. We ask in his name and for his glory. Amen. And so every now and again, we come to a text in the scripture that breaks into what we might expect and disrupts us. Texts like we heard read this morning might make us real, or maybe squirm a little bit, or if nothing else, take a sober look at reality. Texts like these, verses like we've just read in Isaiah 63, are why it is so important for us to be committed to the whole counsel of God. We may be tempted to avoid texts like this. 
passages that confront us with hard realities. But we have to take a long and honest look at them because we believe the Bible to be true. We believe that every word of the Bible is true and every word of the Bible declares to us something of God's glory, something of God's purposes, something of his character, of his plans, of his nature. And we must take our hearts and put them up under the reality of God's word as it has been declared to us. Not us come to the word and try to make it say the things that we want. Isaiah 63 verses 1 to 6 are fundamentally about the lengths to which God will go to glorify his name, to save his people, and to fully and finally defeat evil in the world. I don't know if you were here or if you remember way back when we started Isaiah. We said it a phrase over and over in the early days of Isaiah where we said Isaiah could be summarized as uh, God will stop at nothing. The, the lengths he will go to to bring glory to his name and to prepare a people to dwell with him forever. And Isaiah 63, 1 to 6 comes right up under that grand arc of the book. We see the lengths to which God will go to glorify himself and prepare a people to dwell with him. Even the lengths he must go to to purge the earth of sin and its effects and everything that stands in the way of his glorious purposes. So before we look at these six verses, I want us to just again remember the context of where we are. I think it's important as we come to these verses uh, this morning. Isaiah 60 to 62, where we've been for the last several weeks, is and has been a glorious picture of the ultimate end of God's work of redemption and salvation. In Isaiah 60, we saw the portrait of the new Jerusalem, the new Zion, that God would create as a place for his people to inhabit forever that would be filled with the light of God's glory, so much so that the nations of the earth would be drawn up to the brightness of the glory of God in that place. In Isaiah 61, we then came face to face with the one through whom God would bring these purposes to pass. We see this one who was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim liberty to captives, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the reality of God's salvation among his people. If you have your Bibles open, actually go back to Isaiah 61 for just a second because I want you to see something because Isaiah 63 could feel like an intrusion into what has been happening over the last several weeks, but it's not. And I want you to see something in Isaiah 61. What we see is this person who is anointed by God's spirit. We know that it is Jesus of Nazareth who came to bring good news to the poor. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. He came to open the prison doors to all who were in captivity. Look with me at verse two. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. 
The day of vengeance of our God, right? So what we've seen in the rest of Isaiah 61 and into Isaiah 62 is the outworking of the day or the year of God's favor. What it would look like when God has fully and finally transformed all of creation and his people to embody his righteousness and to shine like the brightness of the glory of God for all to see. It's into that that this text comes. Now we see the other side of what the spirit-anointed servant came to do, to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord and to show the day of vengeance in the heart of God. Isaiah 63 breaks into this some ways for us like a record scratch. However, on the surface, it might seem to be jarring or like reorienting or out of nowhere, but this could not be further from the truth. First, first I want us to see that these six verses portray for us this statement that uh, had come related to the anointed one, that he was going to bring or proclaim the day of God's vengeance. As we'll see later when we get into the text, the demonstration of God's wrath and his righteous judgment is an absolutely necessary part of his accomplishing his work of salvation. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot experience the redemptive favor of the Lord without looking at the reality of God's wrath and his justice. It is absolutely important. And so we saw the working out of the favor, the year of favor, and now we're brought face to face with the day of vengeance in the heart of God. Another way that this doesn't come as an intrusion to us is in some ways, if we have eyes to see it, uh, this text actually serves as an encouragement to those who we saw at the end of Isaiah 62 who were to be set like watchmen on the wall looking across the horizon waiting for the inbreaking of God's purposes. Now, however, we know this. As we wait for the purposes of God to break in in the world, we're faced with all sorts of hardship and difficulty, and it does not appear at times as though uh, the promises we long for are being accomplished in the world. A text like this actually shows us and should encourage us that sin, darkness, destruction, injustice, wickedness, will not have the final word. This is meant to bolster us in the place of pleading with God for his promises and his purposes to be made known. This is actually meant for those who are in Christ to be like wind in our sails as we wait for the day when sin and its effects will be fully eradicated from the earth. So what I want to do this morning is simply walk through the text and then ask the question, what does it mean for us? What does this text mean for us? So the flow of the text is pretty straightforward. It's, uh, it consists of two questions followed by answers. The first question comes in verse one, and it is a long question 
detailed question followed by a really short answer that establishes the identity of this person coming up toward the city gates. The second question is the remainder of the text from verses two to six, and it's a really short question followed by a very long answer that is intended to show us what this person has been doing and why. So we we have these two uh, questions and answers that go back and forth. So in verse one, almost as if the watchmen that have been set on the wall back in Isaiah 62 that are looking out across the horizon, watching for God's in, the inbreaking of God's promises, they see a figure in the distance marching up in strength. And we see the question asked in verse one, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? The one who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So even in the question, we have two pieces of information that are really important for us as we seek to come up with the identification or the the meaning of what is happening here. The first thing that we need to know is the location from which this person is coming. It's not insignificant. It's there for a reason. We see that this warrior is marching up from Edom and from Basra, which is the capital city of the nation called Edom. If you're not familiar with the scriptures or you don't know what Edom means, it was a nation to the southeast of Israel, but it had a long and pretty hostile relationship with the people of God. And through the years, Edom became the foil to God's purposes and plans. The nation of Edom had descended from Esau. So if you aren't familiar with or you need a refresher, way back at the time of the patriarchs, Isaac's sons, the twins in the womb that came out that were two nations that would be opposed to one another were Jacob that became the people of God and Esau who became the Edomites. The nations have this unbelievably hostile relationship. When God delivered the Israelites from slavery in the Exodus, as they're wandering through the wilderness, they seek refuge or passage through the land of Edom and the king resists them. Edom at many times throughout Israel's history uh, came and gloated over them and raided them and opposed them and they became more than just this nation in the biblical narrative. Look with me, go in your Bibles back to Isaiah 34. Because by the time of Isaiah, Edom wasn't just Edom. It became, in many ways like we've looked at, Zion can become shorthand for God's people. Edom becomes shorthand for the wicked of the earth. The things in the earth that are set against God and his purposes. Look with me at Isaiah 34, verses 5 to 10. God says, my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat and the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of the rams. 
For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra. There's that capital city again. A great slaughter in the land of Edom. For the Lord has a day of vengeance. Hear that phrase again. A year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned to pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So what we see is by the time of Isaiah in the prophetic imagination of the scriptures, Edom isn't just Edom. It becomes this personification or this portrait of all that is opposed to God and God's judgment to it is depicted in such a way that he says it's going to be like what the New Testament picks up and says is hell. Smoke rising forever, pitch, sulfur, burning. This is Edom. It's a depiction of everything that stands in the way of God's purposes and plans much like Zion stands as a portrait of God's people, Edom is a portrait of the wicked in the earth. It's the embodiment of sin, its effects, and the wickedness upon the, on the world. The second thing I want you to see in this opening question is notice that the warrior is described as having splendid garments, majestic, glorious beautiful garments. And he's marching up in the greatness of his strength. He's not limping. He's not exhausted. He's not barely making it. He's marching up in strength, having accomplished his task. And I want you to just put it in your note, in your mind, note it away. I think it's unbelievable. And we, anybody that's thinking about what's about to come related to what his garments actually represent, the fact that Isaiah says they're beautiful, majestic, glorious, has to invite us into a biblical way of seeing God's wrath and his purposes and what he will do to accomplish salvation. We just need to put that in our minds for later. The warrior responds to the question with a simple answer. So we get this longer question with a really quick answer. He says, I'm the speaking one. I'm the one that speaks and I speak in righteousness and I'm mighty to save. So what we see immediately is this is none other than God himself. All through Isaiah, two things have been said about God again and again. He speaks in righteousness and he alone saves. And it becomes this quick tagline for this warrior to identify himself as the Lord. He says, I'm the one that speaks in righteousness and I'm mighty to save. So I am none other than God himself marching up from the place of sinful rebellion and wickedness having been victorious in my actions. The second question then breaks in in verse two. It's a simple question. The speaker wants to know, why are your garments red? Why are they red? Now, it's fascinating. It's almost as if as this warrior gets closer, 
the speaker realizes these garments aren't red in their, in their natural state. They've been stained red. They're not just made red or designed red. They've been stained red, he says. He goes, why are your garments red? Why is your apparel red? And your garments are like the one who treads in the wine presses. Then the answer comes that the Lord has in fact been trampling the wine presses, but not wine presses for wine. The wine presses here are the nations of the earth. And he says, the Lord is returning from a, a, a war, a, 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 a victory against the nations, warring against them and staining his garments in their lifeblood. All right, let's take a time out for a second. This passage has likely already created something visceral in you, right? We have oftentimes resistance to the wrath of God, to talking about his indignation, his fury, the reality that he will war against sin. We, we at times become uneasy there or uh, skittish there, or we want to draw back from it, right? And then we ask questions like, how does this square with the love of God, right? If, if 1 John 4 declares that God is love, how does the love of God square with the wrath-filled God covered in the blood of the nations? How does that square together? I want you to just take a moment and like check your own soul for resistance. Where, where do you feel resistance right now? Where do you feel like I have a difficult time putting that together and making sense of that? You know, if we're honest, in our contemporary moment, at least uh, by claim, this is one of the, the places where people will regularly walk away from Jesus and say, I can't, I can't worship a God like that. I can't serve a God who would have wrath or vengeance or uh, express his justice in these ways. However, I want you to think about this. The real problem that we all will come up against in trying to make sense of the, the relationship between the love of God and the wrath of God if we, if we think of those things in compartments or we think of those things as contrary to one another, we will all have a problem of what to do with real evil in the world, right? We all have a problem of what to do, what to do with that. And we see it, right? We see it in our world, even right now, even right now, right? And there's, there's this like quick thing that we could go to where when we talk about you know, outrage culture or people that, that find virtue in, in rage and in the rage machine that is the media or whatever. But before we go to the misuse of that, let's actually dri drill into the reality that there are aspects of truth and reality at play there, right? When we look at the world, we know something's not right. We know it, right? 
Just take the last three weeks, right? In Ukraine, two and a half million people in three weeks have been displaced and made to be refugees. That makes us feel something, right? It makes us feel deeply. We look at, I looked at the numbers again this week. Globally, statistics estimate that there are between 40 and 50 million abortions a year. Let's put that in perspective. World War II was 50 million casualties. Every year. That makes us feel something. Right? We feel angry about that. We know it's not the way it should be. We know that things aren't the way they should be. We look at real evil in the world. I mean, go watch a documentary on World War II or the Holocaust or slavery in our nation and tell me that God is not angry. There's a theologian named Miroslav Volf who, in grappling with the idea of the wrath of God, he wrote this. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to believe that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful in the sight of the world's evil. Hey, did you hear that? If you are angry at the world's evil, why would you not believe that God is? Why would you believe God isn't? Would we want to serve a God who turned a blind eye to the atrocities of this world? Would we want to? That statement has hit my heart really deeply where he says, I, would have, I, I came to realize I would have to rebel against that God. He says, God isn't wrathful in spite of being loving. God is wrathful because God is love. We see here that the wrath of God is not opposed to the love of God. God is not divided like we are into competing parts that conflict with one another. He is pure in his being. Therefore, because he is loving, he is angry. He has fury. He has wrath against everything that stands opposed to his goodness, his righteousness, his glory, and his love. Now, before we jump back into the text, I just want to do one quick thing. If you are quick in this moment to go, yeah, that's, that's easy. Everybody can look at that and go, it's wrong. And you want to take yourself off the hook. I want to just invite you to consider a question, right? Like there's an easy way or a, a, a lie that we could believe in going through life that, that, you know, really, really bad people. Yeah, maybe, maybe God will judge and have wrath towards and anger towards the really bad of the, of, of, of humanity. That it's, that it's clear. He's clearly against that. I just want to ask you a couple questions. Number one, where's the line? Right? 
Where's the line that transitions from sort of bad to obviously bad? Where's that line? And who gets to define it? Who gets to define it? Do you get to define it? Does our corporate sense of whatever we deem moral today define it? Who gets to define what that line is? It's God. God alone gets to define what that line is. And he actually speaks to us and tells us that every one of us has turned away from him and rebelled against him. And every time we have sinned in thought, word, and in deed, we have committed cosmic treason against a holy God. Just want that in our hearts as we move on because it would be easy to go, yeah, 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 the really bad of the lot. Who gets to define what's bad? Where's the line and who gets to make that definition? So in verses six, four to six, we then come to the reason that the Lord is returning from Edom with his garments soaked in the blood of the nations. In the beginning of verse four, we see the word for. Highlight it, circle it, underline it. The Lord tells us here why he's doing this. Why has he taken aught with the nations and why has he been trotting them down in a wine press? We see the reasons here and he, you can summarize them in three. There's three things that he outlines. First, we see that there was wrath that he had against them. He has fury against the nations. He has vengeance stored up for them because of their wickedness, their uh, evil, their rebellion against him. Again, we have to grapple with the reality that a God without wrath is truly a God without love. The Lord here declares that there is a day of vengeance that has been held up in his heart and it is intricately tied to redemption. Look at verse four. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, meaning there was righteous indignation stored up because of the wrong done that needed to have justice meted out against it. And that was in my heart. And my year of redemption had come. He said, it's time to bring redemption. And redemption required vengeance. It required that sin was dealt with. Number, number two, the second reason we see is that the Lord declares he did this. Why is he coming up from Edom with his garments soaked, having trodden the winepress of the nations? Because no one else could. Why is it him? Because nobody else could do it. Look at verse five. I looked, but there was no one to help. There was no one who could do this. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. That's uphold my ways, my character, my righteousness, my justice. No one could hold that up. I looked and no one could do it. So I did it myself. Why is the Lord pictured as coming up having done this? Because none of us could have. 
both because we've disqualified ourselves because of our sin. That's one reason why none of us could do it. But there's another reason none of us could do it. None of us has the unity of mind and heart to hold justice perfectly. What I mean by that is, could you met out justice in perfect love, patience, compassion, mercy, gentleness, graciousness, all of those things at the same time? When you want to lash out in vengeance against somebody, right? When they wrong you, how often are you thinking about wisdom and grace and mercy? You have to do a lot of work to hold those things together. That is who God is. It is who he is. He doesn't have to do a lot of work to go, hey, how do I perfectly express love and grace and mercy and wrath and wisdom and knowledge all together? He doesn't have to spend any time thinking that through. It is who he is. There was no one else. We have here a reminder that God alone can vindicate his glory. The last reason we see is that the Lord desired to bring salvation and redemption. And to do so ultimately, he has to deal with sin and its effects. Again, if the Lord were simply to overlook sin, he would in no way be just. And Paul says, we see in Romans 6, the wages of sin are death. You actually... We can't, we couldn't live with a God that just overlooked sin. Go ask any two-year-old who has, has had his toy stolen, right? We are built, hardwired with a sense that wrongs must be made right, right? Wrongs have to be dealt with. They can't just go overlooked. You can't just turn a blind eye and pretend like it didn't happen. God says, I had to deal with sin and its effects in the world because it was standing in the way of my purposes. And I will go to whatever length it takes to deal with it. So it's a heavy picture, right? What does it mean for us? How do we make sense of it? What do we do as the people of God hearing this word? How do we order our response to this kind of word when we hear it. I think there's a couple ways that we could make sense of what this means for us. The first thing that I want to invite us to see is this means that you and I need a savior. It means that we need a savior. In Luke chapter four, when, when Jesus stands up in the synagogue of Nazareth and he takes the Isaiah scroll and reads Isaiah 61 about the spirit-empowered, spirit-anointed Messiah who would bring forth redemption for God. When he reads it, he stops after saying to proclaim the year of the favor of God. He doesn't say anything about the day of vengeance at the moment. What this means for us is that we find ourselves in a particular season in the history of redemption. Because of the life 
the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, there has been made available a season where there is an invitation to experience the year of the Lord's favor. There's a season of amnesty, so to speak. This is what we get in Romans 2 when Paul talks about the kindness of the Lord is meant to bring us to repentance. What he's saying is God is slow in executing his wrath because he wants more people to be given the opportunity to turn from their sins and find salvation. That's the season we find ourselves in. However, we have to come face to face with you and me. Like the nations of the earth, we deserve the wrath of God to be poured out upon us. In our sin, in our rebellion, in our wickedness, we deserve to be trodden down in the winepress of God. Let that sink into you for a second. Not just as like the thing we say every Sunday. We deserve to not be the people that see this from the walls watching for the inbreaking of God's, uh, for the inbreaking of his promises, we deserve to have been trampled underfoot, every one of us, in his wrath and his righteous judgment. Yet because of the death of Jesus, there is a proclamation of forgiveness, amnesty, and redemption that is available to any and all who would call upon him and put their faith in him. Any who would recognize that they are guilty of sin before a holy and just God and call upon his name can find salvation in him. Jesus Christ at the cross, he paid the redemption price for your life and he appeased the wrath of God for all that would turn to him in faith. This in God's perfect economy allows him to remain just. I want you to think about that. What Jesus did at the cross by offering himself as a sacrifice, offering himself in the place of any who would call upon his name for salvation, he actually makes it to where God can stay just while he saves you. This is a beautiful reality of the gospel. God doesn't just overlook sin, right? He doesn't just sweep it under the rug and say, it's not that big of a deal. I'm just love. I'll let bygones be bygones. People are people. We're all going to be fine. It is of such an atrocious reality that there had to be a sacrifice in our place. He didn't spare his only son, Paul says. This is remarkable and is the offer of salvation to any and all who will hear. I've been thinking about it this way, way this week. And uh, forgive me if this is really like forthright or um, the, the vivid in its depiction and imagery, but I've been thinking like related to the justice of God, someone has to be covered in blood. Either you are covered in the blood of the lamb or he will be covered in your blood as you are trodden under his feet. There is no other option. There's no other option. 
and for any and all who will hear that word and cast themselves upon him and have no other plea before God, you can receive salvation. This text, what it means is we all need a savior. We all need a savior. That's the first thing it means. I think there's a couple other things that I think we can derive from this as well. I think it means that we can be encouraged and it feels upside down or it feels like it might not be the primary thing that we'd come face to face with here, but the vision of the blood-stained warrior is a reminder to us as we walk through this world that is difficult and hard and oppressive. I've been thinking about how in Second Peter, Peter talks about Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says his righteous soul was vexed and tormented. There is something that weighs down on us as we live through this world that is not the way it should be. And texts like this remind us again, sin and its effects will not have the final say. God will one day eradicate everything that is wrong with this world, everything that is broken in this world, every hurt that has been done in this world, every injustice that has been enacted in this world, every single one of them will be dealt with, either in the death of his son or in him purging it from this earth forever in judgment. That actually brings encouragement to us in this world as we feel the effects of sin and its weight pressing down upon us, as we are tempted to be despairing and discouraged and offended. We can look at these kind of passages and say, there will be a day. There will be a day when God will set everything right. And he's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's not going to just turn a blind eye to it. He is going to deal with it perfectly, fully, and finally. That should be encouraging to us. The last thing I want us to see is this should shape and reform our outlook, particularly as it relates to our own assessments of how um, retribution, vindication, and vengeance is enacted. This, these kind of passages remind us that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to you, not to me. This is what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 12 when he tells and encourages believers in Rome, and he tells them, hey, in the midst of the places where you've experienced reviling and opposition and reproach and slander and wrongdoing, and you've bumped into one another, and you've experienced all of these wrongs, don't rise up in your own power and try to enact vengeance. You cannot do it. Only the Lord can. Only the Lord can bring true and good and right vengeance to this world. You cannot. So this actually invites you and brings you into a posture of trust toward him to say, I may never see absolute justice served in this life. 
I may never see vindication for the things that I've experienced in, my, in wrong toward me, injustices, hardships, opposition. But there is one who sees all and he will not let one of them go without being dealt with. Again, either in the death of Jesus or in eternal punishment. It changes our outlook. It makes us able to be lovingly disposed in trust towards the God who will one day fully and perfectly bring his righteousness to this world. So as we come to the table this morning, we're going to remember, remember the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus. We're going to rehearse and celebrate and enjoy together the way by which as the family of God, we have been invited to experience amnesty and forgiveness and uh, grace where we did deserve wrath and judgment forever. The way we take communion at Redeemer is we tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We'll have servers in the front, the middle, and up in the balcony, and a single serve to my right, to your left. If you put your faith in Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to come and eat and celebrate and remember Again, rehearse the story that you were far off. You deserved the wrath of God. You were his enemy and he made a way for you through his death. If you aren't a Christian and you're here this morning, I wanna ask that you not come and take this meal with us. This meal is a meal of faith. It's a meal of remembrance in, in the reality of Christ and what his death accomplished If you don't believe in him, this meal won't do anything for you. It won't change uh, God's disposition towards you. It won't change uh, how he relates to you. The only experience how you can experience him change his disposition towards you is in Christ Jesus. We would plead that you put your faith in him this morning. But if you don't, don't don't feel pressure to come and take this meal with us. I'm gonna pray for us now. The servers will come forward and we'll receive together the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. God, we thank you this morning for your death, your resurrection. We thank you that you have made a way for us. God, we thank you that you do not overlook sin. Thank you that you are so committed to your own glory and your own name that you take rebellion seriously. And God, I ask for us as we come to receive this morning again, afresh from the table, God, would you remind us of the remarkable and majestic gift that is the death of Jesus that we would receive freely again this morning from his life that we would be filled with gratitude God and then you would also remind us this morning that you 
will one day bring a full and final end to sin and its effects in this world. God, as we look for and long for your coming, God, even in this room where there are so many places where people have experienced the effects of sin in their lives, in their emotions, in their minds, even in their bodies. God, I ask that you would remind us this morning that you see, you care, and you are committed to dealing with sin and its effects in this world ultimately. God, remind us of that. Would you come and nourish us and feed us by faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.